Well, for those of you who have never partaken in our cafe at the 10 o'clock hour, let me encourage you to consider staying after. I uh, opened up my phone to text Pete Martinez here and say, hey, praying for you, just heard that your wife's in labor. Saw a text from my wife. I had attempted to be a good husband this morning. She set out a coffee cake, and instead of having to bring all the kids by herself and then the coffee cake and everything, I was like, oh, I'll cut this up and bring it. Then I forgot to tell her that I took it. So she was looking around frantically today for the coffee cake. So there's a real possibility that there will be two coffee cakes here this morning <laughs> instead of just one. So you're welcome and pray for my wife. This is what she has to deal with, right? Even when I try, I screw it up, which is a great segue into where we're going this morning on biblical marriage. Now I'm going to ask you to be a little bit vulnerable here this morning, especially you men. Show of hands, who here has seen The Notebook? Uh-huh. The Notebook, right? Some of you, some of you aren't man enough to admit that you watched that chick flick, okay? Some of you are probably not old enough to remember. Uh, some of you are. Uh, it's, it's a Nicholas Sparks mo- novel they set to a movie. It, I've seen it. It's not really my genre. It's a chick flick. It's not really my thing. But as far as chick flicks go, it's actually, it's actually a pretty decent story. If you haven't seen it, I'll fill you in a little bit. The story goes like this. It's a story of a married couple they get married, or they, they fall passionately in love, and they pursue one another, and it's back and forth until finally they come together and they live happily ever after. Until, that is, they grow old. And the, the wife in the relationship gets Alzheimer's, and she forgets everything about her life, including her husband. And so the whole premise of the movie is the husband sitting in the nursing home, recounting their, their story of how they came together and fell in love and loved one another, and it's a, it's a real tearjerker, to be honest with you. As you watch it, you're sort of left feeling, whether you're married or not, you're sort of left feeling w- with this question, this longing in your heart, wondering, will I ever experience the kind of love and joy and fulfillment that these two couples seem to experience? Even though it's hard, even though the, the Alzheimer's and all of that, the way that, that the love between them is, is shown is incredibly compelling. And you're left with a sense of longing after you see it. Will I ever experience something like this personally for myself? And I believe it's, it's movies like The Notebook and, and all of these chick flicks and that whole genre and the Disney, all of the princess stuff, all of that. All of that paints a picture for us about what the world and our culture thinks marriage is. These things would have us believing that if we miss out on sex and romantic love, then we are missing out on life itself. But I want to ask you this morning, is that true? Is that accurate? Are marriage and romantic love and sex, are those the only sources of soul-satisfying love in this life? Or does God have something else for us? Perhaps even something better for us? Those of you married today may be thinking, well, I thought it was. I thought it was, but then I got married, and the marriage that I'm currently in, it isn't offering what I had hoped for. It certainly isn't offering what Hollywood had promised me. Some, maybe because your marriage wasn't offering the film that you expected, maybe you or your wife have chosen to, to move on, or your spouse, husband. Maybe you've chosen to move on from that marriage and you're divorced or pursuing something else. Others of you might be single here, either by choice or just the circumstances of life. You didn't really plan that, but that's where you are. And you might be wondering, am I somehow less than Am I missing out as I look out and observe all of the happy couples around me? 
If I never get married or or remarried, is there any hope for me to experience this nirvana of romance and love? Am I just destined to miss out on the ultimate, settle for something far less than? Church, I believe that you and I have been sold a bill of goods from our culture about marriage. We are all too well aware of the issues that exist within the marriages around us. We know marriages aren't perfect. They struggle. Many of us have experienced divorce firsthand, whether it was between you and your spouse or your parents, aunts and uncles. So we know there are issues in marriage. And I thought about addressing some of those specific breakdowns. But as I thought more about it, that, those, those specifics on how to rehab a marriage and some of that, that can be found in our text this morning. But instead of, deal with the spe- uh, uh, instead of dealing with the specifics, I thought of taking this a little different route this morning and dealing more generally with marriage and how we view it as a people. And I want to do that for a couple reasons. I want to do that for the sake of those who are single in here, who are disheartened and maybe even a little desperate wondering if they'll ever find someone. I want to encourage those folks. And I also want to encourage the spouses in here that have become disillusioned and frustrated with their marriage. To do that, I think we need to recapture and rehab what our view of marriage is. Why exactly did our loving Father give us the institution of marriage? Did he give it to us to be this source of ultimate joy and love and fulfillment? Or... Did he give it to us for another reason? To answer that question, I hope, or I think the answer to that question will take the pressure off those of you who are single as well as those of you who are married. If we rehab our view of marriage, I think it'll take the pressure off and I think it will position us in in a place to receive the joy of Jesus regardless of your marital status, okay? So that's the big idea of where we're going today. Thinking biblically about marriage relieves pressure and positions us to live with the joy of Jesus regardless of our marital status. So, why did God create the institution of marriage? To answer that question, turn with me in your Bibles or read with me on the screen, Ephesians 5, starting in verses 21 through 33. It says this, verse 21 I've included in this section. Your Bible might not, but I have because I think it's the key to understanding the the whole section. There's a joke within the Bible nerds among us that when they put the verses and dividers through there, some guy did it on the back of a horse, and whenever there was a bump, he put it. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they don't. I think verse 21 goes with this section. It says this, Submit to one another about out of a reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, 
a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Woven throughout this passage is a metaphor. The metaphor is marriage. Marriage between Christ and his church, as well as marriage between men and women. The marriage between Christ and the church is meant to help us understand how our marriages between men and women are supposed to look. The mutual submission, the love, the self-sacrifice. It's meant to give us a a glimpse of how you, husband, are meant to love and provide and lay down your life and rights for your wife. It's meant to show us how you, wife, are meant to submit to and respect and honor your husband as Christ does with the church. But the reverse is also true. Marriage between men and women is meant to reveal also the mystery of how Christ relates to his bride, the church. So it's a little confusing because it kind of intermingles and goes back and forth. Are we talking about Christ and the church? Are we talking about men and women? The answer is yes. In this passage, we discover that Jesus is like a husband or a groom and that he willingly gives up his life, sacrifices his rights so that his wife could be made radiant, holy, blameless, and live in love and unity with him. The example that Jesus gives us helps us better understand our marriage relationships. Here we discover the different roles of men and women that we're supposed to play within marriage. Again, women are to take a more submissive role to their husbands, and this is spoken to Christians. That's the key here. You need the Spirit of Jesus for this to work. Otherwise, it gets twisted and manipulated, and we can get pretty off base and disordered pretty quickly if the Spirit of Jesus isn't involved. But Jesus shows us the example. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And already we can see that Hollywood's example, what it has said to us and promised to us about marriage, doesn't seem to be lining up that well with what God shows us about his plan for marriage. Hollywood suggests to you and I that marriage is meant to fulfill you to make you happy. And so what we've got is an entire culture of people that are running around, coming to marriage relationships like two ticks with no dog. Under the premise of Hollywood's perspective on marriage, people come to one another expecting to be able to suck the life out of their spouse, right? Then hopes of discovering this ultimate fulfillment. But what happens with Hollywood's plan? Well, we've only got so much life to give with it from ourselves. If we make marriage about our personal happiness, the relationship turns into a soul-sucking enterprise rather than a soul-energizing enterprise that the Lord meant for it to be. As the life of Christ shows us, he did not come to his bride to be served, but rather he came to serve his bride to the extent that he willingly gave up his life on the cross as a ransom for her. Husbands, that's your standard of love. Rather than sucking the life from his bride, seeking to pull out any ounce of personal happiness he could extract from her, he rather decides to give his life and to serve her self-sacrificially instead. 
This is one major renovation that we need to make when it comes to thinking about marriage, folks. Hollywood says marriage is about your personal happiness, but the Bible says marriage is about your personal holiness, which is forged through the process of giving up your rights within marriage so that you can submit to and serve your spouse out of a reverence, a love for your Savior, Jesus Christ. Here we discover that marriage is meant to be one of the relationship crucibles that God refines our character by. So if you discover that your marriage is a struggle, I want you to be encouraged this morning. It was designed that way. That might make you scratch your head a little bit, but think about this with me for a minute. Even before sin entered the world, men and women were created as complementary beings. They were created out of the same essence. They're both a part of humanity. Men and women are equal in value, absolutely, before the Lord. Equal in value, both equal parts of humanity, sharing in the same essence. But we are also vastly different from one another. We were created with different functions within our humanity. I think we know this. I remember after having two little boys being confronted with the female psyche in a profound way after my little daughter was born. My boys were gruff and gruff. Graham still has a a raspy voice. We call him Grambo because it just fits, right? If you've met him, you understand. Ellie is not that way. My boys wanted to wrestle and play and fight one another and me. Ellie, since the time she could crawl, would go into her bedroom and accessorize, pick out clothes, wants to play dress-up. She'd find a bow and crawl out to her dad. Before she could talk, she would put it on and look up, with, up to me as if to say, Daddy, tell me I'm pretty. Men and women are different. We've always been this way. It's always been this way. We're similar. We're, we are similar, but we are also incredibly different. This was by design. Men and women were created similar enough to be capable of loving one another and yet also different enough from one another to give us opportunities by which to express that love. To say it another way, there are moments where your spouse or the opposite gender is going to make you scratch your head and you're going to think, what in the world are they thinking? It might even drive you crazy a little bit, right? This is a beautiful opportunity for you to express the love and grace of the Father. It gives you an opportunity within the difference of men and women. There's an opportunity to seek to understand and give up your life and rights to honor the differences that exist between the genders. It is the crucible of differences between the genders that creates space for you and I to learn just a little bit more of how Jesus loves us. And again, this was true even before sin entered the picture. But now that sin is among us, learning to love across these differences is made all the more difficult. You see, when two sinful, selfish people say, I do, what you have is a recipe for a whole lot more sin. A whole lot more opportunities to die to yourself. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, jot that down, go read it later. This is why he tells us if you're single and you can remain single, you should. Because in many ways, marriage is just going to complicate your life. 
If you struggle with lust as a single person, you are still going to struggle with lust as a married person. The consequences are just going to be greater if and when you fail after you're married. When you're single, you can worry solely about serving God and making that your chief concern. But if you get married, now not only do you have to concern yourself about serving the Lord, now you have to concern yourself with the needs of your spouse and your family as well, and it complicates things. It's not bad. It's just more difficult in a lot of ways. And so Paul says, if you can remain single, you should. You don't sin if you get married, but I'd like to save you from some of the headaches and troubles and worries of the world that come along with marriage. It complicates things for sure. Marriage does. And if you're going into marriage with Hollywood's idea of marriage, expecting to be served and fulfilled rather than challenged to submit and to sacrifice then you are going to get pretty disillusioned real quick. Again, because marriage is one of the chief relationship crucibles God uses to refine our character. God uses marriage to help make spouses look more like Jesus. Paul points this out to us in verses 25 and 26. He says, Just like Jesus gave up his life and rights for his bride to make her radiant and present her without spot or blemish, when husbands love their wives within marriage, like Jesus loves the church. And when wives submit to their husbands within marriage, like the church submits to Christ, spouses have an opportunity to help make each other more radiant. To say it another way, when we make marriage about giving and serving and submitting mutually and sacrificially, rather than taking and sucking life from one another, we have the ability Like Jesus helps make us more beautiful, we have the ability as well within marriage to help our spouses look more like God created them to be. The reverse is also true. If we come to marriage looking to be made happy and suck the life from one another, we have the ability to make our spouses uglier as well. So the secondary reason God gave us marriage, I believe, is to help make us holy, not make us happy. By that, I don't mean that you can't be happy in marriage. You can be, certainly. But only if we follow God's design. Happiness is not the aim. Your personal fulfillment is not the aim of marriage. It might be an outcome of growing in holiness through marriage, but it's not the end. It's not the aim of marriage. And you might say, that sounds like just a point a pastor would make. You're just splitting hairs here, right? What's the big deal? Well, it matters It matters quite a lot because what we believe matters. What you and I believe shapes our behaviors. It shapes our expectations. And if we disorder these things, it will end in disaster. If you've discovered your marriage is challenging, be be encouraged. It was by design. God designed it that way, which brings us to the heart of the thing. If the secondary purpose of marriage is to help us become holy, What's the primary purpose? We've already said it's not to fulfill us ultimately. If that's not it, then what is it? Why did God give us the institution of marriage? Here it is. At its very best, God created the institution of marriage to point to a much greater relationship, that of knowing Jesus Christ. 
Marriage was only ever meant to give us a taste and picture of what God wants us to experience in relationship with him. To unpack this a bit more, we have to track down Paul's quote of Genesis uh, 2.24 and verse 31. In Genesis, it reads like this. He says, that is why a man leaves a father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, as you read that, the natural question that follows out of that is, what is why? He says, that is why this, this happens. Marriage happens. Well, well, what is why? Why does man leave his father and mother and become united to one with, with his wife to, to become one flesh? Well, to get that answer, we've got to rewind the tape a little bit and hear what comes before this statement in Genesis. For those of you who are new to studying the Bible, new to Christianity, what we're doing here is what is called cross-referencing. Paul's mentioned a portion of Scripture that happens earlier, and it's helpful for us to go back and read the surrounding context. It helps us get into the mind of Christ. What was he, or the mind of Paul? What was he thinking when he, he says this in, in our passage? So here we see Paul quoting from the creation in Genesis. Apparently, there is something in the way that God created the world, and men and women, there's something within that, in there, that should affect how you and I view what marriage is. To work with the rehab metaphor a bit more, apparently something within Genesis 1 and 2 reveals to us God's blueprint for how this relationship is to go as well as what marriage is supposed to show to the world. So what does God say about marriage in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, in the creation account, you can go read it later, we discover that God creates the world. There's nothing And then God speaks, and things appear. The light, the stars, the planets, the plants, the land, the seas, animals. He speaks, and everything is created. And at the end of every time that he creates something new, we're told in that account that God looks out upon what he saw, and he saw that it was incredibly good. And as you work through the creation account, this pattern is repeated a lot, so that it becomes Something that sticks out in your mind. God said, and it was, and he saw that it was good. God said, and it was, and he saw that it was good. This happens again and again and again. That is until he comes to the man. And he sees that man is alone. And at this point, it is incredibly jarring in the story to hear that God said, and it was, and something was not good. What was not good? God said, he looked at the man and he was alone, and it was not good that the man was alone. And the reader is left wondering, what exactly is it about man being alone that is not good? Is it that he cannot fully be fulfilled without female companionship? Those of you who are single in here know that can't be the case, or at least you're hoping that I'm going to tell you that isn't the case. And you can rest assured. You are not less human if you're single. You are not missing out if you remain single. Our ability to glorify and enjoy God individually is not contingent upon our marital status. But in the creation account, we're not just talking about men and women here as individuals. No, Adam and Eve are the representatives for all humanity 
When they sinned, we all sinned, the Bible says. They're the corporate representatives for all humanity. And so I need you to think with me not about individuality right now. I need you to think with me corporately about humanity. When God said it is not good for man to be alone, he's speaking about Adam as an individual, yes. But Adam, again, is a representative for all humankind. And so perhaps a more helpful way to phrase it is that God said it is not good for humankind, for mankind, to be alone. It is not good for mankind to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for them. The next question that hits us is, well, what what does mankind need help doing? The creation account gives us the answer. Why did God create us in the first place? He created humans to look like and to live like God in our physical world. Humanity is meant to be God's image bearers in the physical realm. We are meant to live with God and serve with God in relationship, helping to rule and reign over the created order. We are meant to show the world who and what God is like, and it is for this reason that God creates mankind, as well as women within it. And you might be thinking, what reason? To help mankind better share and shine the image of God. Mankind and humanity were created as a unit, male and female. And God instituted the one flesh union of marriage to be the primary relationship by which God's image and desire for humanity is displayed to the world. To say it another way, the intimacy shared between husband and wife is meant to show us what Christ died to give us more fully and completely in relationship with himself. The friendship and love and acceptance and joy that are experienced within biblical marriage is meant to give us a glimpse of what God desires for us to experience with him. The love across differences that we spoke of earlier is meant to shine a light on the love that exists within God himself and the love that he died to open us up to, receiving and experiencing with him. Now, I need you to hang with me here for a minute. I know this is philosophical, and it's, it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around, but stick with me. We believe that our God exists as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct, different persons made of the same essence, this is wicked hard to wrap our heads around, right? But marriage makes it a bit more comprehensible for us. The Godhead experiences love across differences within itself. God exists in perfect community, community within himself. The Father loves and serves the Son. The Son loves and serves the Father and Spirit. The Spirit loves and serves and submits to the Father and the Son. There's this reciprocal nature of love and submission and community that exists within Jesus. Community, intimacy, love, they all get their definition by the fact that they exist within God himself. One plus one plus one equals one. It's incredibly complicated to wrap our heads around, right? But it's incredibly important as well. First off, 
It tells us that God did not create us because he was lonely or suffering in some way. To put it another way, God is not a needy girlfriend, okay? He was perfect, is perfectly fulfilled in his Trinitarian community within himself, with the relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't create, create out of a sense of lack or longing. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need you and I. Rather, he desires to invite us into the community that exists within him. He creates other beings out of an overflow of love because he's so generous. He loves what exists within himself, and he says, I want to create other beings that can share in this intimacy within me. I want to graft them into this community that exists within myself. Our God creates out of an overflow of love, not a lack of love. He creates out of generosity, not loneliness. And because this is crazy mind-bending and super hard for our brains to wrap our minds around, he draws a picture for us, right? Explaining God and the Trinity to us is like trying to explain electricity to a four-year-old. I recently had that opportunity. I was rewiring my basement, putting lights up, and I had Clark helping me hand wire nuts because he wanted to help. So, hey, buddy, you hold here, hold these things, hand them to me, and we'll screw them together. So I'm up on the ladder doing this. And at one point, he said, Dad, how does electricity work? I was like, oh. So I did what any millennial would do, and I found a YouTube video for kids that showed infographics that were animated and drawings and pictures that not only helped a four-year-old understand how electricity worked, but also helped his dad understand a little bit better how electricity worked. This is what marriage is meant to be. It's a YouTube video for four-year-olds meant to give us a glimpse of the kind of relationship that Jesus Christ died to give us within himself and the Trinitarian nature of God. One plus one equals two, equals one within marriage, not two, right? Men and women are different and yet the same, and when they come together, they don't multiply, they unify into something greater than themselves. This is what our God is like, and what he desires for us to be folded into. Unity, union, with Christ. One plus one plus one plus one is meant to equal one within the Godhead. Father, Son, Spirit, and this is mind-blowing. You and I grafted into that in a way that, that marital intimacy only begins to scratch the surface of the kind of bliss that is available to anyone within relationship with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, I realize this is incredibly philosophical, but what it means for marriage is that God gave us marriage not to be this ultimate life-fulfilling relationship that our culture said it is. No, instead, God created males and females and the marriage relationship between them to act as a sort of telescope to give us a glimpse of the star-sized desire for intimacy he longs to share with us. It means that men and women were not created solely for relationship with one another. No, you and I were created to share in God's forever happiness and display his image and glory to the world. 
Marriage is a part of how we do that. The ultimate relationship God wants for us to experience is a relationship with Him. This means that God gave us marriage not so that everyone has to get married, but because within the male and female one flesh union that is marriage, we get a YouTube video, a living picture of the kind of relationship God desires to have with each and every one of us. Or as Paul says it in our passage, marriage is meant to help us understand the mystery of Christ's love and the relationship he shares to those who live within the bride, his church. See, when we rehab our view of marriage from Hollywood's pursuit of happiness to this, a more robust and biblical view where the chief aim of marriage is for us to become more holy, to look more like Jesus, and for us to display the kind of relationship that is available to us by faith in Jesus Christ. The pressure is removed from single people and from married people alike. As we recapture a proper perspective on marriage, we can readjust our expectations. We can change our behaviors as well, or they naturally will, by having right beliefs. I read an author recently, Rebecca McLaughlin. She's a Christian apologist. She said it better than I can in a book that I read of hers recently. She said, Our world teaches, teaches everyone that marriage and within it, sexual and romantic fulfillment are the ultimate goods. Miss out on sex and romance, we're told, and you miss out on life itself. But within the biblical perspective, missing marriage... And gaining Christ is like missing out on zooming matchbox cars around, but growing up to own and drive a Shelby GT500 for yourself. When we are fully enjoying the ultimate relationship with Jesus, union with Jesus Christ, no one is going to cry about a loss of the scale model. And so the biblical perspective on marriage relieves pressure from single folks. You can be completely fulfilled and enjoy your life as fully as anybody else by remaining single. Jesus did it, and he died to make it possible for each and every one of us as well. But not only that, it relieves the pressure from married couples too. Of course, marriage is going to be challenging sometimes. It's the same challenge that every one of us has, learning to die to ourselves and to live as Christ. Of course, marriage is going to be challenging. It's one of the relational crucibles God uses to shape our character. But we need not worry about whether we married the right person or why our marriages are not filling us with a constant state of nirvana. In one sense, human marriage is designed to disappoint. It leaves us longing for more. And that longing points us to the ultimate reality of which the best marriage is only just a scale model of. We started out this morning talking about the notebook and Hollywood's ideal of an ultimate fulfilling relationship. They say, go find love, find The one. Seek out passionate and romantic sexual relationships and you'll experience exhilarating bliss. You'll be fulfilled. You'll find the one that completes you. And then you die. 
And to be honest with you, if that's all there is to life, it's not a bad aim. Find a smoking hot spouse who makes you happy, keeps things passionate, and then die. But those of you who are married know that even at its best, our marriages do not fully satisfy us. And that's because you and I were created to find the one that completes us. We were. The problem is that no other person apart from Jesus Christ can. Listen, I love my wife. She is a gift of God to me. She is one of the main ways that I receive love and grace from God in my life. I am incredibly thankful for her. I thoroughly enjoy our relationship. It's rich, it's intimate, it's vibrant. It's also incredibly frustrating. I'm a real piece of work to live with a lot of days. I am. It's a struggle to love and serve one another. But it's also a little bit of heaven for me here on earth. And that's the point. If anything, my marriage has only served to make me all the more aware of its inability to give my heart what it was created to receive. It's only served to create in me a deeper longing to be known and loved and more perfectly and deeply cared for than what my wife is able to give to me. That's because marriage is not mankind's ultimate relationship. We were created for something more. We weren't created solely for marriage. Marriage was created to point us to our craving for relationship with God. And so it is my prayer that God would rehab our perspective on marriage this morning. And along with that, I pray that he uses your marriage and the marriages around you as a telescope to gaze upon the star-sized intimacy that he is inviting you to experience by faith in the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, may we all know this love more fully in our lives. May we be united to Christ and his bride in more intimate ways. May we be known, naked, and unashamed before our Savior, and yet fully embraced in forgiveness and united to Him. May you and I experience the bliss of marital love and union with our Maker and Redeemer. I pray that the Lord Jesus would woo you to Himself. You don't need to find the One. You can't find the One apart from Jesus. He is the one. I pray that each and every one of you finds him. Would you pray with me? Father God, this is deep stuff. We waded into it this morning, but it is rich. I understand, Lord, that we cannot comprehend or wrap our minds around what we talked about apart from your spirit. I thank you for the picture, for the YouTube video that marriage is, I pray that the marriages of Crossroads would more fully realize and explain and show the world what Jesus is inviting us into. I pray also that you would help us, husbands and wives, to live like Christ and the church within our marriage. I pray that that would happen so that we can more fully show what Christ is offering, but that 
not only that, so that we can also experience the joy and happiness that is available by doing things God's way. But more than that, Lord, I pray that marriage and what you've said about marriage would show us in such a profound way of what you are inviting to experience with you. Romantic love is great. Intimacy within the marital union is great. But none of that compares to what we can have and share in relationship with Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, it's one thing to talk about it. It's an entirely different thing to experience it. I pray that what I've said this morning and what you said in your words would not just be empty words this morning, but that by the power of the risen Christ, you would make it true and experiential for every single one of us, married or single, that we would know the intimacies of union with Jesus Christ this morning in a profound way. That you would show us the passionate love that you have for us as we look to the cross. You would remind us of the love that the husband, the groom, shows for his bride and that we would experience that in no other way than we have before. Only you can do that, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would. I pray that you would do that for your honor, for your glory, and for our joy. Amen.